Hi, and thank you for joining us for In All Things, a weekly podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. I'm Rachel Joseph. Your host for In All Things is Dean Weaver, State Clerk of the EPC. The motto of our family of congregations is, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Now, here's Dean. And thank you again, Rachel Joseph. And welcome to another edition of In All Things, the weekly podcast of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And it's a delight to have you here in the conversation again. I hope you got a nice good cup of coffee going. Uh, Perhaps you're at one of those places where you have a notebook out, uh, maybe your Bible or devotional, and you're sitting in your favorite chair having a cup of coffee and listening in on this conversation in the EPC, or maybe you're out just uh, driving around uh, doing errands and listening to a podcast. I oftentimes listen to podcasts when I'm on my way into the office. And wherever you are, we're grateful that you've taken the time to join us. We're grateful that you've taken the time to share about this ministry with other people. As the word spreads both in the EPC and out of the EPC, we think these are conversations that are beneficial for the very kingdom of God, because our our sovereign God is sovereign over all things. One of my favorite quotes from Abraham Kuyper is, there's not one square inch in all of the creation that the sovereign doesn't declare mine. It all comes from him, goes back to him, belongs to him. And so that gives us a lot of room to cover a lot of ground. <laughs> and we do. And Currently in this season of this podcast, we've been doing a number of different series on different gospel priorities, done a series on uh, church planting, a series on church health, and uh, we'll be doing a series coming up in the near future on global movement and on effective biblical leadership. And that brings me to our guest today. Bonnie Gatchell is a teaching elder in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church in the Presbytery of the East, and she is the executive director of Route One Ministry, and she is also part of our EBL, or Effective Biblical Leadership Team, in the Office of the General Assembly. And Bonnie, welcome to In All Things. Thanks, Dean. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great having you here, and we look forward to our audience getting to know you a little bit and learning more about Route One Ministries and the important work that you do both in terms of Route 1, but also we'll want to cover some of the ways in which you've been resourcing presbyteries to help them understand one of the most important issues of our day, which is to understand the nature of abuse and how churches and presbyteries can be thoughtful, loving, and proactive in terms of what needs to happen. But before we get into that, our sponsor today is That Gospel Priority, Effective biblical leadership. And I will say more than probably any other thing, people as I travel throughout the denomination will say to me, what exactly is effective biblical leadership? And I say to people, well, just if you break down the three words, effective means successful in producing a desired or intended result. And you might say, well, what is, what is the result? Well, the second word is, is biblical. People who have a biblical worldview people who have a biblical lifestyle, and lead out of that. If they're an effective biblical leader, well, the old-fashioned word for that is discipleship. And so increasingly, we're going to frame and help understand that to be an effective biblical leader is what we mean when we talk about being a disciple of Jesus. If you're going to follow Jesus, we believe that you should be an effective biblical leader leader. Well, let's turn to our conversation today and dig a little bit deeper. As I said earlier, 
uh, with Bonnie joining us in the studio. We want to get to know her a little bit. And Bonnie, give us a little bit of your background. Thank you, Dean. Again, I really appreciate it. I grew up, actually grew up in Michigan. I grew up in a very rural community with one stoplight. And my parents are still married to this day. In fact, they just celebrated 53 years of marriage. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Shout out to mom and dad. Happy anniversary. Yes, happy anniversary, Jean and Maxine. Well done. (laughs) We went to church every Sunday. And so we would go as a family and we would do Sunday school separately. And then we would go to church all together as a family. And so that was kind of the environment that I was raised in, but it was also an, a hard environment in that it's a rural farming community. There's a lot of poverty. And so I kind of hold those things in tension with being very much blessed with a luxurious spiritual background, right? But then also in a community that faced a lot of poverty. So that's where I grew up and my parents and I became a follower. I decided to commit my life to Christ. I grew up Baptist and would later become Presbyterian. Well, and, that was foreordained. So, I mean. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I grew up uh, and I became or committed my life to Christ when I was 13 years old. And I just kind of felt instinctively like this, this difference in my attentiveness to scripture and wanting to study scripture and wanting to be present and with the Lord, but truly I felt called, so it's kind of interesting, right, how the Holy Spirit works and things work out, but I felt called to a pastor ever since I was six years old. Mm. So when I was a little girl, I used to pretend to be a pastor, and my mom and my stuffed animals were my congregants. Wow. And my mom let me do that. God bless her. Now, for, were you, you were in a Baptist tradition at that yes. point. Was that particular Baptist tradition welcoming women in ministry? No. No. Okay. So, so that are... would be the ongoing struggle for probably the next decade or so. Okay. Yeah. So my mom let me pretend to be a pastor um, until I think at one point when I wanted to serve communion and then she like kind of cut that off or whatever. So to what you're saying, I felt this call to be a pastor. I wouldn't have identified it as a call until much later. Right. Mm-hmm. But in the community I grew up in, I was directly told from the pulpit that women are not to be pastors, right? There's a lot of great places for women to serve. The pastorate is not one of them. Also just the idea that the man is the head of the household. So there is a lot of complementarianism. I would say even fundamental Baptist, fundamental King James only was the culture and community that I was raised in. Well, that's the translation that Jesus used after all, right? Precisely. English and everything. Yes. And then I, you know, just by the matter of watching people around me, my youth pastor went to what's now Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. At the time, it was Grand Rapids School of Bible and Music. And so because that's where he went and I, you know, idolized him a little bit, I wanted to go there. That's it. That's the only school I applied to. And so I went to Cornerstone University and did my youth ministry Bible degree there and a philosophy minor. So pretty pretty useful (laughs) overall package. And I really thought that what I was going to do was be a youth pastor. I thought that's what would be radical. That's what's going to shake up the church is if I'm a woman who's a youth pastor. And shortly following graduating from Bible college, I actually just found myself in a place, I think a lot of people find themselves, but I was really in a dark, probably the most depressed I've ever been Mm. and really just withdrew from any type of work in the church. So if I spent the next year working at a coffee shop and living with a friend, and then I found my way through that and ended up working in the Dominican Republic 
at a boarding school for a Christian boarding school for at risk youth. And so I worked there for the next year and a half. And in the middle of that, I realized that I really missed the intellectual scene. And I really missed studying scripture with some kind of intellectual boundaries and accountability. So I applied to Gordon Conwell's, what was at the time called Distant Learning Program. And they sent you a cassette tape in the mail. Literally a cassette tape. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a cassette tape. Not an eight track, but a cassette no, cassette, tape. Yeah, yeah, we were up a little, yeah, you technology. You could listen to it on we, your Walkman or something Exactly. Like right. Yeah, a cassette tape. And it was Walter Kaiser's Christ mm. in the Old Testament oh, class. Oh, oh, so good. So good. And bought the books. They also were mailed to me. And you would take the exams and then put them back in a little envelope and mail them back to Gordon Conwell and then, right. you know, wait the results. So super efficient. But in doing that, I preached my very first sermon on Exodus, where the Israel has just escaped slavery. They've just crossed the Red Sea and the dead bodies wash on shore. And I just kind of brought this to memory this week, in fact. In that moment, preaching that sermon in the Dominican Republic in this tiny little one-room church with stained glass windows in the back, I knew that I needed to go to seminary. Mm. And so I left the Dominican Republic, went to Gordon-Conwell, did my MDiv. And you went to the uh, the South Hamilton campus yes. outside of Boston. Yep, yep, yeah. that's right, yep. I went to the South Hamilton campus outside of Boston, had never been in New England before in my life, so I like the plane touched down. But the moment I stepped off the plane, I felt like I was home, and I've felt that way ever since, that Boston feels more home to me than mm. like Michigan and where I grew up. So. Yeah, I went to Gordon-Conwell. I had a great experience at Gordon-Conwell, including studying abroad in Israel for a semester. Mm. And so when I graduated with my MDiv, I took a job at a Baptist church as their youth pastor and their after-school director and I loved the work we were doing for the inner city. We were in the city of Lynn, but that was not, it didn't feel like such a great fit. So at the end of that year, I resigned and I started to pray and ask the Lord, I wanted a pastorate and I wanted to stay in Boston, but maybe that's not what he had for me. So I decided to give it a year. And if in that year, nothing came up in the pastorate position for Boston, then I was going to take it as him calling me somewhere else and just start applying across the globe. Right. Which is what I had done to get to the Dominican Republic and what I had done to get to Gordon Conwell. In that year, I also did a THM in church history at Gordon-Conwell as well as the South Hamilton campus, just as a way to like fill the gap, of course, and had a conversation with friends. And in that conversation, it was three of us. We met at a coffee shop and one woman asked the question, what can we do to connect with people sexually exploited, women sexually exploited and trafficked here? And she specifically meant the North Shore of Boston, right? Which is a very affluent area for people who don't know South Hamilton has people like Elizabeth Elliot living there and really old money and people have horses just because you can have horses. Yeah, there are like rolling estates. Yeah, rolling yeah. estates is not an exaggeration. Right. <laughs> but it is riddled with trafficking mm. and exploitation. And so I think that I remember startled me a bit and then very quickly within seconds was like, oh yeah, why would there not be exploitation here? And so the answer that was given in that conversation was to make baskets and take it to strippers working on Christmas Eve. And this resonated with me. 
And so the next day I Googled strip clubs near the EPC church that I was attending at the time, which is in Danvers, Mass., and found a couple strip clubs near there. And I also, at the time, technology, you know, again, I had a big 17-inch screen laptop. And so I realized maybe I shouldn't be Googling in public Starbucks (laughs) strip clubs. So I called up the strip club near our church and asked the manager if we could bring baskets on Christmas Eve. And he said, yeah, it sounds weird, but I don't have a problem with it. So we got a head count. There's 25 women working in the strip club on Christmas Eve. And so as a church, I made up a list of things that I would want to receive for Christmas. Earrings, cute socks, a journal, a mug with hot cocoa. And we put together about 13, 14 items in baskets and delivered them on Christmas Eve. And the women that we met wanted hugs and they cried and they said, this is the only gift they would get that year. And so for me, in that moment, I knew that there was an entire people group not being reached with the gospel. And from there was logistics and learning. And there's more of that I can go into if you want me to in a minute, but that's how we launched Route One Ministry. And that's what we've been doing for the last 13 years is training Christian women on how to enter strip clubs and meet with the women who work there to build relationships very slowly, non-judgmentally over time. Wow. Uh, there's so much there, Bonnie. I mean, um, I just think about how God uses some seminal events. There you are in a coffee shop with two friends and having a conversation that really just changed the entire course and direction of your life. And an entire ministry is born mm-hmm. out of that mm-hmm. to a group of people that just don't show up on most people's radar, mm-hmm. especially in an affluent community. So I probably want to come back to discuss how exploitation uh, particularly happens in places that would surprise people that, mm-hmm. that they, they're mm-hmm. unaware of and that they, you know, cause typically people think of something like this as happening in another country or they think about it happening in a under-resourced community, which it does. But, but to think of it happening in a place like South Hamilton, the North shore particularly, which is super affluent, I think, you know, most people would be surprised by this. So I do want to come back and, and kind of unpack that a little sure. bit, but I do want our listeners to learn more about route one ministry. So, so you said it, it has to do with like training women in the church Mm -hmm. to over a long period of time, build relationships with women to what effect. And, and so what are some of the things that route one does to build those relationships and where does it go from there? So route one, I guess, primarily does two things. So we do the outreach work into the strip clubs meeting women, connecting with them, and then connecting them to resources, which I'll get more into in just a second. And then the other thing we also do, which you've alluded to a little bit, is education of churches and church leaders, not just on trafficking, although that's very important because it reaches all economic backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds, but also in trauma and abuse and how pastors can respond. With our outreach efforts, which is the heartbeat of the organization, how we started, We are actually in three major cities, the three largest cities of New England. We're in Springfield, Mass., Worcester, Mass., and Boston, Mass. And we literally gather, the women gather together as a team. They have a particular hub where they might do some devotional time before they go out. And they go in to the clubs with just one little gift per woman every week. So they go each week, they go three weeks in a row, and then we take one week off as Sabbath. And when they go, they have 
like maybe it's a bottle of nail polish per woman or lotion per woman with a tag that says you are treasured. We go into the strip clubs in teams. No one ever goes alone. Um, And the managers are very aware of when we're coming. We try to go on the same night and take the same volunteers to the same club so that we can build relationships. So we go in, we connect. It takes a little while, probably takes about four to six months before a woman will have a really deep conversation with us. But then women will just start telling us about their lives. I mean, inside the strip clubs, we've had women tell us about miscarriages. We've had women show us bruises from their boyfriends. We've had women share about their hopes of being a writer someday, opening their own salon, going to dental school. And we've had women ask for prayer in the strip clubs and bouncers. And we've done it right there in the middle of all of it. And so then we also give the women our phone numbers. So the real connections, the deeper connections begin to happen outside the club. So as we get phone numbers, the volunteers and staff text with the women, then they find a time to meet up. They might get coffee. They might help the woman do her laundry. And in that, they help the woman kind of explore, what could you do? What would you want to do that would make you happy? And for a lot of the women, that's just a new idea that I could get paid to do something that I like Mm. versus doing something I've been told to do my whole life because 90% of women in the sex industry have been sexually abused repeatedly before they turn 18. Mm. And 83% of women trafficked here in the United States, their first pimp is their mom or their dad or their stepdad at age 12 or 13. Wow. Yeah. That is a stunning. Yeah. Just let that weigh in. It's so heavy. The relationship between abuse and trafficking. You've just started to open yeah. that door. Yeah. Help us understand that a little bit more. What kind of things should the church know about abuse? If we're going to kind of talk about preventative measures before we ever even get to the question of, of exploitation and trafficking. The first thing that I need Anyone and everybody who's listening to hear is that abuse happens in every church. There are one out of three women, this is according to the Department of Justice, one out of three women have been sexually abused under the age of 18. And that's not one out of three women who work in the sex industry. It's one out of three women. So if you think about your church, how many people attend your church at total? If you divide that by half and then take that number. So if it's 400 people who attend your church and now you have 200 females, roughly divide 200 by three, that number is the number of women right now in your church who have been sexually abused. And I doubt, and this shouldn't be an exercise that you do, but I doubt you could think of all those women. And it's not necessarily essential that the pastor know every person that's been sexually abused in their church. But it is important that for us as pastors, we know that this is a real issue affecting our congregations, right? And affecting the people who come and worship. And so I think that's one place that's important. I think another thing that's important is to understand how abuse affects someone's life ongoingly. And so if a child is sexually abused under the age of 18, which is what a child would be, and they're living with that abuser or the abuser is across the street. Or more often than not, the abuser is, is known by yeah. the family, right? They're usually in a kind of close inner circle in the family. Yeah. For 
anybody who's sexually abused, maybe an adult woman living alone in her apartment or a child, 80% is someone you already know. It's a friend, a date or a parent that, yeah, has perpetrated. And so I think that's what's really difficult with pastors too, is that a lot of time pastors want to know how to identify perpetrators at your church, but perpetrators come in all shapes and sizes, right? right? And so that's, there's some indicators, but for the most part, I think the healthier way for us to move as evangelicals is to provide safe churches where abuse victims feel safe enough to say, this has happened to me. So what does that look like, Bonnie? What does a safe church look like? One thing is, how do we treat both genders in a church? Are women and men given equal voices in your church? Complementarian or egalitarian or not, right? Like, that's a different conversation. But how do we treat women in the church? Do they feel, would they feel that their voice would even be heard? That's one assessment. How do we treat children in a church? Are children pushed aside? Are they marginalized? Are they, you only get to worship God? the way children want to worship God loudly and undignified when it's children's time, or do you get to worship God undignified when you're in big people church? And the reason is you need to feel like you belong. I don't share my, I don't know about you, Dean, but my big mess ups, I don't share them with just anybody. I share them with the people who I think see me and want me to share. Right. And so I think that's a baseline assessment is how do you value women And how do you value children in your church? And I would say, you know, if we look at some of these churches where sex scandals have come forward, right, they are churches that are led by charismatic men who only have men surrounding them and keeping them accountable, right? All male leadership. So that's just something to consider. I think another assessment is how do you talk about the body, the human body at your church? Do you leave room for people to explore getting therapy, right? Do you talk about mental illness the same way you talk about like a broken arm, that you need a specialist and being able to connect people to specialists and being able to get the healing that they deserve? So it's Jesus plus a therapist. It's not just Jesus and it's not just therapy. I think that makes up a a safe church. And then the physical body itself. Is there a room in your church to talk about if people make a mistake and have sex outside of marriage or, or are struggling with their body identity and how they see themselves? Is your church one that breeds shame in those moments or allows for open conversation and then places for people to step into healing? I think those, those are the things that come to mind. Okay. Let me just be real specific yeah. in one thing, because it's probably the um, I don't know. It's the most visible thing anyway, on a regular weekly basis, preaching. Oh yeah. Right. So how would a safe church, if a pastor is listening, or if you have elders who preach or listening, how would they um, make sure that in their communication, how they preach, they're communicating that, that this is a safe church. So again, I mean, I know it sounds like it's not, quite connected, but are all your illustrations men? Or do you sometimes bring in illustrations or quotes from women? Because again, you want people to not feel like marginalized or forgotten. That's going to help you get to a place of feeling um, like you can have a voice. But you also, pastors who are listening, you have 52 Sundays. Can you use one Sunday 
to talk about domestic violence? Can you use one Sunday to talk about sexual abuse being wrong and what it is and how, you know, um, people can respond to it? Can you take a Sunday or a couple of Sundays to talk about sex and to talk about it from a healthy perspective, not as this negative? Because if, you know, we look back at Genesis, God created sex before the fall. So it's not something that falls under that. It is a way that he gave image bearers to produce other image bearers. And I think there are, I think the question you might be already thinking about Dean is, okay, if they're going to talk about sex from the pulpit or domestic violence from the pulp, from the front of the room, how do we also safeguard the room with children or whatever? And I think preemptively give notice to your congregation that this might happen. right? Right. So in six weeks, We're going to do a Sunday to talk about domestic violence and what God has to say about it. We want you to be ready. We might even provide childcare for that or extended Sunday school. And the reason this is important is if you've been sexually abused and no one's ever mentioning it, you continue to feel marginalized. You continue to feel that shame. But if your church can have conversation around sexual abuse or physical abuse, not being right, not being appropriate, you now as a church are moving from concern to compassion and you're giving witness to something harmful that has happened and it's important to give witness to. It's an opportunity to grieve with those who grieve. Hmm. Moving from concern to compassion and grieving with those who grieve. I got to think, you know, going into something like this, Bonnie, that because of the prevalence in our society, that the normative numbers of people who are victims of abuse, uh, to not to address this seems like a huge uh, oversight or a a huge void in any kind of ministry that seeks to care for people. But to jump into it, to do it, and to do it faithfully, to do it well, to do it appropriately, you just can't just, you know, wing that. I mean, this, yeah. this is going to take a lot of, and what I yeah. hear behind a lot of what you're saying is intentionality. So Route One does some education and some training yeah. around these kind of things. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes. And I'm so glad that you said that. So yes, I already know there are certain pastors and some of you I even know by name who are stirred by the statistic that one out of three women is sexually abused and you want to go after it and address that injustice but there are best practices because you don't want to cause more harm, right? And you may not be the best person to get into it with the women who have been sexually abused in your church or some of the women, but not all of the women. So Route One does have some resources. We actually have started doing some trainings, trauma, abuse, and response training with Presbyteries. We were at the Presbytery of the Alleghenies a few months ago and some other places already have us in their docket. And I highly recommend that, by the way, for those who are listening, if you're involved in Presbyterian leadership, this is a great place to do training because you hit a whole bunch of churches at the same time. And honestly, you know, I came into that meeting. I was in the Presbyterian of the Alleghenies meeting when you led that. And it's a tough subject. You're not known, right? This wasn't your Presbytery. This is your mm-hmm. visiting another Presbytery. Mm-hmm. Um, but you brought a lot of grace a lot of sensitivity without diminishing the content at all. And I thought my read on the room was people were on the edge of their seats and were really taking it in and were really appreciating it and were taking that back with them. They were better equipped to respond after having been at a presbytery meeting. And that's a, to me, that's a good presbytery meeting when, when it's not just all about exams and business, but actually you're getting 
some training that helps you be a more biblically faithful, helpful church. That's effective biblical leadership. <laughs> yes, so, it is. So you're open to Presbyteries inviting you to come and do presentations like that. Everything you just said. I think a Presbytery is a great place for it to happen because you're equipping several, if not most of your pastors all at once. The trauma abuse response is a baseline trauma training. We get into what is trauma, how it affects people, why made someone wait to tell that they've been abused, what's preventing people from telling they've been abused, and particularly legally, what are you required to do as pastors? And spiritually, what should you be doing as pastors? I would love to walk beside you in that. So as we close, Bonnie, could you give us just one story of where yourself or someone from Route 1 has gone in and and had those kind of conversations and you've seen downstream just the redemptive relationship that has turned toward the gospel. There is a woman named Jenny and recently Jenny posted on Facebook how she's been out of the strip clubs for three years now. And she refers to herself in the post as moving from a drunken dancer to a CPA and The reason that she posted on Facebook recently is because she just got a promotion at work where she's been made the project head Mm. for the entire department at this particular hospital where she works. And uh, one of our outreach volunteers chimed in and said, Jenny, that's great. I'm so proud of you. And Jenny replied, thank you so much for coming into that dark place. You ladies were like angels. And so that's not to pat us on the back, but to say that God is definitely at work as we enter the strip clubs. Jesus is at work as we enter the strip clubs and connecting women to him in a way they wouldn't even know what's available otherwise. Another quick one is a bouncer one time asked us if we would pray for him. And we put our hands on him and prayed for him right there in the strip club. And when we released the prayer, he had tears coming down his face. And about three months later, we found out that he left the strip clubs and now works at a a local hospital as an orderly. So Mm. I think those are two significant stories to me of the Holy Spirit going in and before us. And this isn't unique to urban centers. Nope. This happens much like the, the, the North Shore. This happens in all kinds of surprising places, right? Yeah, 80% of the women we see in the strip clubs are white American girls. And they're coming from rural communities. They're, yep. It's truck stops. It's the Super Bowl. It's, it's truck stops. It's the Super Bowl. It's your, I mean, one guy pimped out his stepdaughter in the playground in their neighborhood in a very affluent cul-de-sac community. Wow. That's where it's happening. So if you want to make a difference as a Christian, prayer. Prayer is a resource that we have that never, it never expires and we don't do enough at it. But another way is live a healthy example because the women being trafficked, young boys who are being trafficked are next to you at the grocery store line at Walmart, Target, whatever grocery line you have in your part of the country. And when they see you love your spouse well, it starts to percolate in their hearts that there could be a different way of living for them. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah our um, one son that we've adopted comes from a, a broken home. And, and sometimes, you know, Beth and I are sitting on the couch 
And he just stares at us. Yeah, <laughs> You know, exactly. it's just, just like, so this is what a family looks like. Like this is possible. Um, and just being able to show somebody what's possible, to, that there's, there's an alternative to the reality that they have and that they can be happy. Yeah. 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 And that's the first, well, there's a bunch of different places where seeds can be planted, but that can be one of the first seeds. Yeah. yeah. If people want to learn more about Route One Ministry, whether it's the outreach or the educational piece, how would they get a hold of that information, Bonnie? So we have a website. It's loved by Route One, like the highway, all spelled out, R-O-U-T-E-O-N-E.org. So loved by Route One.org, where you can find connections. I also you can call us at 978-930-3136 or email me, Bonnie at lovedbyroot1.org. Terrific. Well, thank you, Bonnie. It's been Thanks, a rich Dean. conversation. And when we get into our Effective Biblical Leadership Series, we'll maybe circle around and have a part two because I think there's a lot of people who will listen to this and want to know more. So yeah. I think we'll have a part two. Okay, that'll be fun. Super. <laughs> all right, friends. Well, thank you for listening. And I really encourage you to share this with others. Of all the podcasts we do, would you share this with others? So I'm just going to ask you to do that. Would you, coming out of listening today, would you like us on social and would you share this podcast with three other people? Just just pick three people because mm-hmm. if you take the statistics that Bonnie mentioned, mm-hmm. one out of three, there's a good chance that one of those people that you share it with maybe needs to hear that something else is possible or maybe they have something to offer by way of caring for this group of people that we just don't even see when they're right there next to us and all among us. So my friends, um, let's wrap up this conversation with a good word from God's word because it covers all things, including the brokenness of our world and our place in joining God and his mission to those who are far from him and hurting and broken. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, including the Imago Dei, the image of of God, people bearing his stamp, his image, all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and they're for him. He is before all things, my friends, and in him, all things hold together for he is the head of the body, the church. Until the next time when we gather in this way, I bid grace and peace to you. Again, for joining us on behalf of Dean and the entire team, we hope you will join us for our next episode of In All Things. For more information about the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, including a directory of local churches, online resources, and much more, visit our website at www.epc.org. I'm Rachel Joseph. I pray you have an overwhelming sense of God's presence in all things today.